Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The passage we'll be looking at today, verses 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. This is the third of six contrasts we hear Jesus once again explaining the original intent of the law in contrast to what the people had been told. Yes, they have the law, but what they had been taught, in fact, was quite different than what God intended. As we have seen, Jesus is not expanding the law. He is not changing the law. He is not setting up a new system. Rather, he is showing what God intended when he gave the laws. Why is Jesus doing this? Is he just trying to you know, fix the mistake, you know, the, the error that has come in among the people of Israel? No, I think he's trying to make it clear what he expects of his people, those who will be citizens of the kingdom. Because remember, he is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he basically says, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, this is how you should live. We saw in these contrasts that he began with the sixth commandment, do not murder. And then he continued with the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Last Sunday, we looked at lust and adultery. And the passage today deals with divorce and adultery. In these two verses, we find an abbreviated statement regarding divorce. But in chapter 19, Jesus speaks about it um, at length. And if you want to turn there, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. There, Jesus is not, he doesn't decide, oh, I'm going to speak about this. He is, in fact, asked a question in this regard. Beginning in verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. By the way, just to point out, because we're not going to look at chapter 19, but you'll notice that the Pharisees say, Moses commanded us, and Jesus says, Moses permitted this. That they had taken a very different view of what was intended. In chapter 19, the Pharisees bring up the issue here, now back in chapter 5, it is Jesus who brings it up. And it is worth considering that Jesus brings up divorce at this point between the section on adultery, lust and adultery, and what we will see the Lord willing next week, that of honesty in speech, of making vows. Jesus calls for fidelity in marriage, there should be no adultery, and everyone who is in marriage should keep their word, they should keep their vows. I think, and I don't know where else to say this, but I think we need to remember we easily forget that divorce 
was actually part of the Jesus story in Matthew chapter 1. Does that ring a bell at all? This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, was her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So this is not a, some abstract theoretical issue that Jesus is dealing with. It is, a, in fact, a part of his family history. Now, let's look at the background, the Old Testament background and then the historical background. It's fascinating to me in studying this that what Jesus is talking about is dealt with in one passage in the Old Testament. The way that the Pharisees talked about divorce, you would have thought that Moses had mentioned it half a dozen times, at least, if not a dozen times. In fact, it's mentioned once. This is from Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, 24. And if you have center references or footnotes at the bottom, it'll refer you to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And here, it is not instruction on how to do divorce. The issue is, if a couple gets divorced, she remarries somebody and they, he dies or she, they get divorced, can the original couple remarry? And Moses says no. That's the issue. Okay? The issue is not how do you do divorce or is it okay to get divorced. Let me read to you these four verses. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring a sin, or do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is the one passage in the law that mentions a certificate of divorce. Just to be clear, in chapter 22 of Deuteronomy, divorce is mentioned. But there, the certificate is not mentioned. Rather, it is if there is something that happens before the couple gets married, they get married, then in fact, the man cannot divorce the woman. It is from this one single passage that a whole variety of interpretations had come up. What are the legitimate grounds for divorce? Now let's look at the history. The time of Jesus, there were two main schools of thought among the Pharisees. One was conservative, one was liberal. They're both named after the, the rabbis who were seen as their founders. Uh, Rabbi Shammai was the more conservative, and Rabbi Hillel was more lax in his interpretation. Uh, by the way, it is, I think, Rabbi Hillel whose views have remained to the present time. Go around most universities, you'll find a Hillel house. Uh, this is for Jewish students at various universities. The differences between the two schools can be seen in what we're looking at today. In Deuteronomy 24.1, the phrase is something indecent. That's in the NIV. The King James has some uncleanness, and the ESV has some indecency. But this became the central issue. How do we define something indecent? In Hebrew, it's made up of two words, ervath davar. Ervath means indecency. Davar means something. Hillel was more liberal, so he focused not on the indecency, but on the something. Okay? 
and he concluded that Moses meant any, in, any form of indecency. And because he didn't define indecency, you know, as Moses did, for him it could mean something like being a bad housekeeper. If you burned the dinner, that would be considered indecent. So the husband would say, there, you've done something indecent, and I can give you a certificate of divorce. Or, came to be seen if he lost interest in her. Then, in fact, you know, she must have done something indecent. If he found another woman more beautiful than her, then Hillel said he could give her a certificate of divorce. Shammai was much more conservative and said, no, it's, it's about adultery. It's about marital unfaithfulness. This is a position that Jesus takes. So is Jesus siding with Shammai? Is he with the more conservative school of the Pharisees? No. See, I think Jesus does three things in contrast to what the Pharisees taught. First of all, the Pharisees were more preoccupied or concerned with the grounds for divorce. Jesus is concerned about marriage. He's concerned about marriage. So if you remember in Matthew 19, he says several times, it was not this way at the beginning. This is how God created husband and wife. This is what God created. That is his focus. The Pharisees, on the other hand, seem much more interested on how you could get out of marriage. Jesus does not want a marriage that is built on adultery because the two will become flesh and what God has joined together, let no man separate. It was not this way from the beginning. The Pharisees seek ways to legitimize divorce Jesus wants to affirm the place of marriage. The second thing is, the Pharisees saw what Moses had written as a command, as I mentioned earlier. Moses commanded us to do this. Jesus sees it as something that is permitted because of the hardness of their hearts. If you, <coughs> excuse me, if you look at the Deuteronomy passage, verse 1, if, verse 2, if, verse 3, if, and then finally in verse 4, then. So you have a series of conditional clauses. If this happens, if this happens, if this happens. And the point is to prohibit the marriage of previously divorced people, that they cannot remarry each other. We're not clear why. It says that she's been defiled. Um, perhaps it is to prevent a hasty divorce. Well, I can divorce you, and then if I get interested in you again later on, we can remarry. And God says, no, this is not the way. Jesus sees it as concession, not as instruction was not this way from the beginning. Thirdly, I would say that the Pharisees took divorce lightly and Jesus took it very seriously. So much so that with one exception, and that is adultery, it was not permitted. This should not surprise us. This attitude that Jesus has about marriage and divorce should not surprise us. In the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, we read the following. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why? because he is seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. 
I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. God created marriage, man created divorce. Jesus seeks to preserve marriage. The Pharisees seek a way to get out of marriage. There is the one exception for adultery, marital unfaithfulness. The word in Greek is porneia, which can be fornication, adultery, sexual immorality. I think what Jesus has in mind is very clear. You have a couple who is married and one has been unfaithful to the other. Why the exception? Why is this allowed? Well, the original intent of the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, has been broken. Adultery has been committed. But if if one partner commits adultery, must they divorce? I would say no. Remember, Jesus emphasizes marriage and not divorce. Martin Luther wrote on this, and he gave this advice to those who really wanted to do the right thing. Try to stay together, he writes. If the guilty party is humbled and reformed, the innocent party should try and forgive. But if there is persistent infidelity, Christians should not forgive because it becomes a sin that takes mercy and forgiveness for granted. And that is intolerable. So, what should we gather? What should we take away from this passage today? First of all, as the Pharisees interpreted it, it was a situation which was greatly, well, let me start over. It was a way that was not kind to women. It was not kind to women. It represented great unkindness to women. Part of this is because women were thought to be the cause of sin. Some who saw Eve as the cause of all our problems, and therefore anything that happened that was wrong, it must have been a woman's fault. Well, we saw this last week that Jesus says that the one who lusts has committed the sin, not the woman. Now, the woman may be guilty of immodesty, of perhaps seductive behavior. That doesn't come up in the text at all. It is the man who is guilty, not the woman. Interestingly enough, at that time, husbands were always seen as the victims. So a woman could commit adultery against her husband and shame him. Or a man could commit adultery with the woman and shame the husband. So it's always the husband who is seen as the victim here. What about the guy who committed adultery? That seems to have been very conveniently forgotten. And if you remember the story, the incident in John, is it John 8, where a woman is caught in the act of adultery? Where's the guy? You can't commit adultery by yourself. But women were always seen as being in the wrong and women or men were the victims of these terrible things that women were doing. So it was believed that a man could marry and then divorce his wife if she burned dinner, if she wasn't as pretty to him as you know, she used to be. And then he could remarry. He could divorce her, then remarry, then divorce and remarry and go on without any thought of what he was doing to this woman or to each of these women that he was divorcing. If a man tired of his wife, he could dump her. But who would take care of her? Jesus says no. He seeks to protect women and he seeks to protect marriage. 
The man causes her to commit adultery. And in Mark 10, if a man remarries, he commits adultery against her. By the way, in Matthew 19, I didn't read the entire passage, but after Jesus answers the Pharisees about divorce, this is what his disciples say. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. You know, if we can't dump our wives, if we can't get rid of our wives for any and every reason, it's better not to. What made marriage attractive to the Jewish people at that time was easy divorce. That's why marriage was attractive. Think much like our time today. That I, I wonder why people bother to get married when one could without reading the tea leaves, anticipate a divorce down the road. Well, yeah, they get married because divorce is an option there. It's, it's something they can do. Um, Jesus says marriage is attractive because this is the way it was from the beginning. This is the way God made us. That's what makes marriage attractive, not divorce. Something to consider, I don't know if you've thought about it, but as we go through these series of contrasts, are you surprised at the topics that Jesus brings up? You're going to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The good news has been proclaimed. Um, Jesus doesn't say you need to go to church, you need to tithe, you you need to read your Bible every day. He doesn't talk about spiritual things. Instead, he talks about holding a grudge, calling people names, Uh, looking lustfully after people, uh, treating people as objects, being reconciled to your brother. Um, I think for some of us, this seems a bit odd. It doesn't seem churchy or Christian-y enough. One of the fascinating passages to me, found in Luke chapter 3, deals with John the Baptist and uh, his response to people. He says to them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John is saying, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're like, well, what should we do? And and what is his answer? You need to go to church? You need to read your Bible? No. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. If we are to be the people of God in this world, it isn't what we do here on Sunday that should mark us, this alone. It is what we do in our everyday lives. How we look at people. Do we see them as objects? Do we insult them? Do we belittle them? Do we seek to be reconciled when we have wronged someone? Do we watch how we look at other people? As we'll see next week, the Lord willing, do we keep our word? Uh, This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. As I said, Jesus doesn't want to talk about divorce. He wants to talk about marriage. And I was reminded of something that the late John Stott said. John Stott was the rector of All Saints Church in London. I passed away several years ago. Whenever somebody asks him to speak about, asked to speak with me about divorce, I have now for some years steadfastly refused to do so. As people go, Pastor, uh, John, can you talk to us about this? And he's like, no. I have made the rule never to speak with anyone about divorce. 
until I've spoken with that person about two other subjects, marriage and reconciliation. And in that, I think, thought is echoing the words of Jesus, the thoughts of Jesus, that marriage is precious. This is the way that God has intended. Husbands and wives should stay together. You see, the choice for us as Christians is not between divorce and no divorce. You know, some Christians, I think, would rather die than get divorced, but their marriages, in fact, are dead. We don't believe in divorce, you know, till death do us part. And I always wonder, will that be natural causes or homicide? I mean, you know, what's going to be involved when you, till death do us part? Um, Jesus is not saying, listen, you got to stay married, married. No, Jesus is saying you need to have a good marriage. You need to work at your marriage. Marriage is not sticking it out to the bitter end. It is a gift from God. It must be cultivated, nurtured, and taken care of. And if I could say on a personal note on this, our anniversary, I can affirm that it is a wonderful gift from God. And it is to be cherished. There's something I think I failed to mention the last two Sundays, and I want to bring it up now, and that is the matter of forgiveness. In each of these contrasts, Jesus has spoken of sins, some of which we, in fact, may have been guilty of committing. We are guilty of committing, okay? Of being angry, of insulting people, of belittling people. But I want to make something clear that I don't think I have. Forgive me for this. Jesus does not speak to condemn us without any hope. He doesn't sort of shake his finger and say, shame at all of you for doing this. Rather, I think in explaining the fullness of the law, Jesus wants to make us aware of our sinfulness. Well, isn't that condemning us? No. We are condemned if we don't do anything about it. But once we come to recognize it, I'm guilty. I have been angry without cause. I have refused to be reconciled to someone. Um, I have treated other people as objects. I have insulted them. If we stay there, then we are in trouble. But if we become aware, then hopefully we realize I need help. I need forgiveness. I need mercy and grace. And we go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. There is nothing that we have looked at thus far in the contrast, there are three more to go, which Jesus cannot forgive. The unpardonable sins are not here. We should not imagine that if I've been angry, or even if I've killed a person, literally killed a person, that is not a sin that Jesus cannot forgive double negative, it is something Jesus can forgive. He forgives our sins. If you have left the services feeling hopeless, then I have failed you. I failed to communicate to you the good news. But you see, the good news always comes after the bad news. The bad news is that I have broken God's law. And not simply in one way, but in many ways. And the good news is that I can be forgiven. God is holy. All sins are committed against him. God is omniscient. All thoughts are known to him. God is omnipresent. 
All acts are committed in his presence. From what Jesus tells us, if I think all sorts of murderous thoughts, if I say all sorts of terrible things, if I do all sorts of horrible things to that person, I've broken the sixth commandment. Do not murder. And if I think thoughts regarding another person in a sexual context that is lusting, desiring to possess what is forbidden, seeking to have mastery of others, then I've broken the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. Jesus forbids even the thought, which means we are in serious trouble. Wait, it it means that we're poor in spirit. If we recognize our poverty, then we can run to him for grace. This is the good news. The bad news is that we are sinners, and if we stop right there, then, then that's it. It's just bad news. But the good news is that we can be forgiven. You see, in the law of God, we learn two profound truths. First of all, that God exists. And second of all, that God is good. That's why he doesn't want us killing each other. That's why he doesn't want us insulting each other. That's why he doesn't want us lusting after each other, treating each other as objects. God exists and God is good. And this is the God we've come to worship today. He's revealed himself and his son, and Jesus here speaks the good news, and the good news is that there is forgiveness for our sins. Let's pray together. Father, I think it is a human tendency to seek to justify ourselves, to put the blame on someone else, seems that that's been the way since Adam and Eve sinned, pointing the finger at others, or to make excuses for ourselves. We blame others. We don't accept responsibility. As Jesus speaks the truth, it should open our eyes to see how sinful we truly are. But he doesn't do this to put us down, to make us feel terrible. It is to make us aware that we are in great need of grace. We need forgiveness. We need our sins to be washed away. And the same man who spoke of these things is the same one who died on a cross that our sins might be forgiven. All sins are against you. All sins are done in your presence. All sins are done with your knowledge. We cannot fool you, but you are God of grace. May we hold on to that. For those who seek forgiveness today, may they find it. For those who seek grace, may they find it as well. For those of us who may take your grace for granted, give us forgiveness, forgive us for this. And may we look to you as our only hope. You are there and you are good 
And may we never forget that. We thank you for the tokens of your goodness in our lives. For birthdays, for Joel's coming up, for anniversaries, he and mine, Tom and Anne. Indeed, you are good. And we have come today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.